0: So, Father, do I have to do what you want me to do? Because I don't want to do it. Father, I uh, sometimes feel so sad and so troubled, I just want to die. Why have you forsaken me? Well, help us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Kind of depressing, huh? Kind of thinking, what's wrong with Peter, huh? Some of you were thinking about calling 911 have me committed, medicated. Huh. A sad Christian is a phony Christian, wrote one of my favorite authors, quoting an archbishop. Saint Paul commanded rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice John 15 the night the night that Jesus is betrayed He says that he spoke that his joy Would be in us and then he prays that his joy would be Fulfilled in us and then according to all the Gospels he spends time alone in a garden with his father I come to the garden Alone. How am I doing, Barry? Is it Barry here? <laughs> While well, the dew is still on the roses And the joy we share as we tarry there Now I'm screwing up, but then it goes like this No other has ever known I mean, maybe I need to spend time alone in the garden with my father. This is a picture of uh, my father. Um, it's kind of grainy, but it's all that I've, that I've got right now. This is my dad on the trail to Upper Cataract Lake in the Gore Range. That says Gore Range Trail on the sign. This would have been sometime around oh, 1974, 1975. You can tell by the red, white, and blue backpack. The wilderness was our garden, and my happiest times as a kid were times alone in that garden wilderness with my, with my father. This is a picture of me. Uh, my father must have taken this picture. This is the top of Peak One. Uh, Peak One is uh, the mountain directly above our old cabin site in, in Frisco. Well, in our, in our text this, this morning, Jesus goes to the garden and spends time alone with his Father. He goes to the garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, do I have to do what you're asking me to do? In just a few more hours, he'll go to another garden where some men will nail him to a tree, and he'll pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah and the Revelation refer to the cross as a wine press. In a wine press, grapes are crushed. Grapes are depressed or compressed until wine is expressed. Gethsemane means olive press, and John tells us that Gethsemane was also a, a garden. In, in an olive press, olives are crushed. Olives are depressed or compressed until oil is expressed. Our text uh, this morning immediately follows, uh, number one, the story of the strange woman who anoints Jesus with fragrant oil. That would be olive oil mixed with priceless spices making a fragrant oil. And then secondly, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is communion. And, And that's what we preached in our last two messages. Number one, how the strange woman broke the earthen vessel, the alabaster flask, and jumped that fragrant oil over Jesus' head. And number two, how Jesus breaks bread calling it his body, his earthen vessel, and pours wine into a cup, another earthen vessel. Judas and the disciples, they think it's a waste, but Jesus calls what the woman did a beautiful thing, and Jesus is the beautiful one who always does the beautiful thing. Broken alabaster, flask, and fragrant oil, broken body and holy communion, and now Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a picture that I took, oh gosh, 10, 11 years ago in the Garden of Gethsemane. The church of all nations is next to the garden. This is a sign that hangs on the wall of that church next to the garden. Please, no explanations inside the church. I took the picture because I thought it was funny. But now I think it's kind of profound. Because I can't explain what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, but it did happen, and it's the truth. So you can think of me as a tour guide. I can't explain, but I can point, and you can watch. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, which in Hebrew and Aramaic often means all, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Same cup but that day will be a wedding day. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. You know, Scripture makes it clear that it wasn't just Judas that betrayed Jesus. The word translated betray is also translated deliver. St. Paul wrote this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night Jesus was deliver, he, delivered, he, he took bread and he, he, he broke it. it. Paul's pointing out that coming to the table is confessing the sin of betraying Jesus, who Paul tells us is our husband. The name Judas is literally Judah. Same word, Judas and Judah, where we get our word Jew. And let me remind you that a a Christian is a Jew. Wed to the king of the Jews. That makes you pretty Jewish. In the Old Testament, God refers to the Jews and Jerusalem as his bride. His bride who had made herself a whore. Sorry, Jesus, the Bible's just not politically correct. That's what what it says. Uh, It's the Messiah's harlot bride that that betrays him and delivers him up to crucifixion on a tree in a garden. She takes the life of the eschatos Adam on a tree in a garden, like Eve took the knowledge of the good on a tree in a garden, and love is the good. A harlot uses love because she sees that love is good for something, like 30 pieces of silver or making yourself into the image of God. A harlot uses love and in the process crucifies love and then can no longer know love. A bride surrenders to love because she trusts love and allows herself to be known by love in a covenant through a sacrament that is communion. She's known by love and bears the fruit of love. Which is life, eternal life. A harlot trades love and so betrays love. And a bride surrenders to love. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah 13, verse 7, which refers to the most astounding of days. Jesus is saying, this day is that day. Zechariah 12:2. on that day, he will make Jerusalem a cup. On that day, says the Lord, Jerusalem will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weeps for a firstborn. 13.1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. Verse 7. 13.7. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 14.4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Verse 6. On that day, there shall be a unique day, an eternal day. Verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. Verse 9: On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. 1420, on that day there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord. And we are the house of the Lord. Not a harlot. A bride. Verse 31. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, says Jesus. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter is full of faith in himself. Kind of like a big juicy grape. A big old ripe plump olive. But this night he'll be crushed by just one glance from the Lord. He will see Jesus seeing him, and he will begin to weep uncontrollably. His psyche, his earthen vessel, it will, like, crack, and he will bleed a river of tears. A fountain is opened in Peter that cleanses him from sin, a fountain that transforms that old harlot into a bride. 33. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must deny, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all, all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul, my psyche is very sorrowful even unto death. Is Jesus depressed? You know, psychiatrists and psychologists have all sorts of definitions for depression that I don't understand. They also provide medication for medical deficiencies in the brain and the blood, which I also do not understand and I do not want to invalidate in any way. But the first definition of depressed in my Webster's pocket dictionary is press down. Jesus has literally been pressed down by sorrow until he's literally lying in the adamah, the ground, the dust, the adamah. The first definition of depressed in my Webster's new collegiate dictionary is low in spirit. And Jesus seems to be rather poor in spirit, doesn't he? Poor in breath, in the adamah. He is pressed down, poor in spirit, and mourning. So is Jesus depressed? Yeah, I think he's really depressed. Is he doing something wrong? No, I think he's doing everything right. Perhaps someone has told you that you were wrong because you were depressed. Maybe you weren't wrong, but right. I'm afraid that if we stumbled upon Jesus in in the garden of Gethsemane in in the the 21st century, we'd call 911, have Jesus committed, then highly medicated so he wouldn't suffer such sorrow and we wouldn't have to watch, because it hurts to watch. Jesus is depressed, but he's not wrong, he's right. Maybe you're depressed. Because you think you shouldn't be depressed. In other words, maybe you're repressed because you refuse to be depressed. Jesus had already wept at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. Jesus was not repressed. Jesus had already wept over his harlot bride, Jerusalem, as he entered the, the city. He's not repressed. Jesus had already said, blessed are you who weep now. Maybe sorrow is not the opposite of joy. In fact, according to John, Jesus has just told the disciples that their sorrow would turn into joy. If that's true, sorrow is like a necessary component of joy, and you can't get to joy without some sorrow. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Of them consists the kingdom of God. And blessed are those who mourn. That means happy are those who mourn, happy are those who grieve. That is, happy are those that when depressed express sorrow. Kind of like an olive, when depressed, expresses extra virgin olive oil. I didn't make that up. Extra virgin. Did you hear that, harlots? (laughs) Extra virgin olive oil. Well, Jesus was depressed. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Back to our text. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul, my psyche is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The father is handing. Jesus a cup. This is communion in and through a cup. Like wine is a communion of grapes that have been crushed and then placed in a cup. Like olive oil is a communion of olives that have been crushed and then somehow placed in in a bottle. To drink from someone's cup in that day, in the scripture, to drink from someone's cup is to experience what that person has experienced or is experiences. It's to experience it with them. It's a communion. God the Father is handing God the Son a cup, and God the Son is depressed. Is God depressed? Well, in the Old Testament, he certainly grieves, doesn't he? he certainly suffers. He's a father who suffers his children. I'm a father and I choose to suffer my children. God makes his children with adamah and breath. That's his own spirit. God the Father makes his children with his own body broken and his own blood shed. God is love in freedom, and perhaps it hurts to make people who also love in freedom. Whatever the case, Jesus drinks his Father's cup. On the cross, God the Father and God the Son experience the same thing, and they will the same thing. And and yet here he does pray, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Well, that should blow your mind. In the garden, the will of God the Son is different than the will of God the Father. It's different at least, at least at least, until he drinks the cup and cries out, it is finished. But here he prays, nevertheless, not my will but thy will be done. Jesus is surrendering his will to God's will. Or is it really his will that he is surrendering? Paul writes, "He became sin for us." Sin is a bad will. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's, that's the good will of, of God. It's as if Jesus, the good free will of God, has entered into the earthen vessels constructed by the bad will that is us. He's entered into us in order to confess our bad will and will what we just could not will. He's a good free will given to us. It's as if there was some sort of you know like communion at the table of the Lord, as if we shared a cup such that he actually took our bad will and actually gave us his good will. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself, writes Paul. It is the Spirit of Christ in the dark garden that is my heart. It's the Spirit of Christ in my earthen vessel willing what I could not will. It's faith. Like I said, I can't explain it. I'm just the tour guy, okay? Next verse, 39. Well, he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, then 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus wants them to watch. What good does that do? What's that good for? Seems to be good for nothing. Leo Buscaglia tells about uh, a contest that he was asked to judge. The purpose of the contest was to find uh, the most caring child. The winner of the contest was this child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had just recently lost his, his wife, his, his bride. Upon seeing the man, the little boy went over into this man's yard, uh, uh, seeing the man cry, He went over into his yard, climbed up into his lap, and, and sat there. When his mother asked him what he said to the neighbor, to that crying man, the little boy said, nothing. I just helped him cry. That's good for nothing. Just good. It's beautiful. And it turns out that the beautiful is not nothing, but the good in everything. What if God is inviting you to help him cry? Well, that would be quite an honor, wouldn't it? Jesus will be denied and betrayed by Peter that night. And he's inviting Peter to help him cry. Jesus has an absolutely immense love for Peter. He longs for Peter to know him in this garden. And not just know about him like Adam and Eve knew about the good when they took the fruit from the tree, but know him because, know him because he is known. He wants Peter to know Jesus. Peter wants, Jesus wants Peter to know him because he, he is known, like a bride is known by her groom. Brittany Manny wrote of this old Hasidic rabbi, uh, Levi Yitzhak, who used to say that he discovered the meaning of love from two drunken peasants. Entering this tavern in the Polish countryside one day, he saw these two peasants uh, drunken gloriously in in a shared cup. Each was protesting how much he loved the other when Ivan said to Peter, Peter, tell me what hurts me. And Ivan said, how would I know what hurts you? Peter immediately responded, Well, if you don't know what hurts me, how can you say you love me? Peter. We are known and loved in the place of the wound. Verse 40, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me, Peter, one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation. I used to think that Jesus meant, Peter, um, pray that you, know, you wouldn't watch any dirty movies or drink too much beer. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I think he meant pray that you would not give in to the temptation to look away. To not watch. The temptation to not watch the Lord suffer the sorrow of your sin. Luke records that they slept for sorrow. Their temptation was to shut down, for it was just more sorrow than they were willing to bear. This week at our staff Bible study, Kathleen said. Uh, Peter, you wouldn't believe the number of people that refuse to go see a relative that's dying. Kathleen, you know, is a hospice a chaplain. She said, you wouldn't, I mean, she said, the people, they call me, are they, they, they ask me, please call my family, and, and I call the family, I beg them, and then they'll say over the phone, I, I just can't bear the sorrow. I just can't suffer the sorrow. Kathleen says it breaks her heart. Frances is a counselor, and she responded saying, Yeah, and I believe that the whole reason there's a counseling industry is that people just won't sit with each other in their pain. They just won't sit with each other in their sorrow. They won't watch. Perhaps all sin and all temptation is really a refusal to watch Jesus suffer the sorrow of our betrayal. Every sin is a betrayal of love. I don't think Jesus was grieving the whip and the nails. He was grieving the pain of betrayal at the hands of those that he loved. He was grieving the fact that his bride did not know him. Peter, James, John, Judas, and all humanity could not bear to watch, and so Jesus was alone with his father, as his father had planned. As I, as I mentioned, my times alone with my father in our wilderness garden were just the happiest uh, moments of my childhood. My father was a pastor at the First Presbyterian Church of Littleton, Colorado, and really the most honest, loving, and Christ-like man I've ever known. I, I never thought that he was a great preacher, but he was just like Jesus. Except I imagine Jesus was a pretty good preacher, but but you know what I mean. When I was 19, in my father had pastored that church for 15 years, and people complained to the Denver Presbytery about a variety of issues, yet really one issue that at that time was dividing the Denver Presbytery. And that means the ruling body over all of the Presbyterian churches of, of Denver. In the Denver Presbytery, there was a division between the right and the left. My father didn't care much for labels like right and left, but he did really want to testify and proclaim the Jesus that he saw in scripture, to make a long story really short, my father was publicly tried by the Denver Presbyterian meeting in this big room in this big church in downtown Denver, and I watched. I was 19. All sorts of people said all sorts of things. But the man who closed the debate stood up and he said this. Now you've heard some nice things about Dan Hyatt but we have discovered, we have investigated and discovered that Dan Hyatt is a liar. Then he closed debate, and then they voted, and then they removed my father, and I watched. You know, it's perfectly legitimate to fire an employee for not doing their job, but I watched my father slandered and betrayed by people with hidden agendas that I knew he loved. I watched my father suffer great sorrow. Or I should say, I, th- I thought I watched. What I remember is anger, anger in that room, just this intense anger when I watched my father suffer. I've heard counselors say that particularly in men, ang- anger is often a mask for sorrow that refuses to be suffered. It was around that time that I decided to go to seminary and prepare for the pastorate rather than a career in geology, which was the track that I was on. About 10 years later, I was a pastor of this little church on Lookout Mountain that was growing at a surprising rate. We had joined the Evangelical Presbyterian denomination, which was a reaction to the old liberal mainline uh, denomination. It was the denomination on the right that my dad helped found after being kicked out uh, from the left. One day a woman approached me after the service and she said this, she said, Peter, God told me that he wants me to send you to the Toronto Laughing Revival. I looked at her and I said, hey, are are you okay if, if I come back and just say they're all nuts? And she said, yes. And I said, would you be okay if I went to Niagara Falls while I was there? And she said, yes. And I said, and would you be okay if Susan came with me? And she said, yes. And I said, great, we'll go, and we went. I saw God do amazing things there, just amazing, to everyone else, including Susan, except me. By the last day of the conference, I had told God that I was leaving the ministry because he did not speak to me. I had confessed to watching all the bad movies that I could think of and drinking too much beer. I, could, I had confessed to everything that I could think of, but not what I, I needed to think of, not the one thing I needed to confess because I didn't know what it was. In the afternoon, the last day of the conference, I went to a seminar taught by a Presbyterian. And then he told us to pray with the person on our right and the person on our left. On, on, on my left, if I remember correctly, whether it was left or right, I, I do know who was there. But on, on one side of me was this huge, just immense, fat, Native American Pentecostal man. And on the other side of me was this little, old, shriveled up Roman Catholic lady. Now I get it. That's like the spectrum of the church. We held hands and we began to pray. But the moment we began to pray, I heard a voice audibly in my head. A voice like I never heard before and like I I haven't heard in this way since. But the voice said, Peter, you don't love my bride very much. Do you? And like that, I knew that I had gone into the ministry because I hated the church. Because I had loved the church and felt betrayed by the church and had somehow vowed to fix the church so I wouldn't have to suffer the church like my dad. And, you know, if I hated the church in some way, well, I also hated myself and my dad and Jesus who suffered for the church. I heard the voice, and what happened next is hard to explain. It was like a fountain welling up from somewhere deep, deep down inside of me, not weeping, but wailing. It was like a river, and it was a river uh, that I did not control. I couldn't control the river, but the river was controlling me. In fact, the tears didn't even feel like my tears. I had the distinct impression that I was crying the Lord's tears, or the Lord was crying His tears and my tears through me was the most healing thing that i've ever experienced there wasn't an ounce of accusation in what the lord said and that was harsh pastor doesn't hates the church but no accusation, no, no blame. He wasn't blaming me, he was weeping for me and weeping through me. I don't know how long we wept, but I had fallen down to the floor, uh, just sobbing, weeping. When I finally opened my eyes, everybody had left and they had like, set up chairs around me in preparation for the next meeting. And I thought, oh, maybe I just had a nervous breakdown. But later that night, Jesus literally pinned me to the floor at the Adamah. He literally pinned me to the floor, he held me to the floor, and he showed me that he was everywhere in my life speaking, that he had used my bad will to accomplish his good will, that he had called me into the ministry, and that he wanted me to stop doubting his love and insisting on miracles all the time. He wanted me to stop doubting his love, and at that moment, I don't know how long that was, maybe an hour, I experienced so much joy that I literally thought I just might die and that was cool with me. I had repressed the sorrow, for I didn't want to share my father's sorrow. I had repressed the sorrow vowing to fix my father's sorrow, so, sorrow so, so it would never ever happen to me. I had repressed the sorrow like a big fat angry olive named Peter. I had repressed until depressed by God and then I expressed sorrow that turned into unspeakable joy. And yet, I suspected that God was not finished with me yet. I tasted the joy, but I couldn't sustain the joy, and I was still trying to fix the church. Verse 40, he said to Peter, so Peter, could you not watch with me an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus did not want the sorrow, for the sorrow. He didn't want the sorrow. Some people like me hang on to the sorrow and then manipulate with the sorrow. They define themselves as victims of sorrow and so justify themselves in all their deeds with sorrow. They find their identity in sorrow. They hang on to sorrow and ironically refuse to suffer the sorrow. They weep and whine but don't wail. They sip the cup but they never drink it to the bottom. Jesus prayed, Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he drank it. That means the only way out of the sorrow is through the sorrow. Only grieving can heal the grief, writes Anne Lamott. Sorrow will turn into joy, says Jesus but you have to suffer the sorrow. And he will wipe away tears, the tears, all tears from all faces, but first you have to cry them. I'm convinced that the outer darkness which scripture speaks of is populated with people that weep and gnash their teeth but refuse to weep and mourn and wail. They're gnashing their teeth, holding back the tears. They refuse to suffer the sorrow They refuse to look on the one whom they have pierced. They refuse to see that with every unloving action and thought, they have betrayed and crucified the Lord of love. They refuse to suffer the sorrow because suffering is losing control. They don't realize that joy is also losing control. To love. Love is the communion between God the Father and God the Son. In 2007, I had pastored Lookout Mountain Community Church for 15 years, the exact same amount of time that my father had pastored First Presbyterian Church. And in 2007, my son was 19 years old, my oldest, the same age that I was when I watched my father Lose the church. And, and in 2007, I had fixed the church, it would seem. In fact, my father used to sit on the leather couch in the back of the church with his oxygen bottle and people would literally line up to speak to my father. But he mourned the fact that he didn't have the opportunity to speak much to me. I didn't have time. I admired my dad more than anyone, but I think I resented my dad for losing the church. And so I worked like a dog to fix the church. Primarily I worked on my preaching as if I was fixing my dad. Ouch. In 2007, we had grown from a few into a few thousand and built a multi-million dollar campus on the side of I-70 Dad had been dead for three years and the strangest things were beginning to happen. A few, a few weeks ago Kim Gold sent me a dream that she had with a word that she had in the dream that she said she thought was for me and this is it. The first fruits of the story is the narration and so for the past two messages I've been narrating the story and you can blame Kim okay so I've been narrating the story the last few messages. 2007 some folks complained to the Presbytery about my preaching Like my dad, I wanted to preach about Jesus from the Scriptures. But now the complaints, they were not from the left. Now they were coming from the right. For I had become convinced of what I knew that my father had hoped. And that is that God would not endlessly torture some people. And Scripture revealed that God just might save all. God is that good and that powerful. It was September 9th, 2007. Like I said, my father had been dead for three years. I had just preached the message and I had gone down to the front row. I was sitting next to Susan who was goofing around because I remember thinking, you need to get your act together because I'm about to get canned, I think. I was trying to worship when all of a sudden Susan grabbed me and I could tell something had happened. She said, Peter, I just saw your dad he was standing right in front of us and she said, his eyes were wild, they were like full of fire and he was so young and Peter, he was so excited, he had this like bowl in his hand, he, he reached out uh, like this and then he said, Susan and Peter, do not be afraid to drink from the cup that the Lord has for you. And then he vanished. I remember thinking, oh wow, and then, Shit. (laughs) Because everything that happened to my dad happened to me. October 6th, uh, I was tried. November 17th, tried in a public trial like my dad. November 17th, I was defrocked, you know. I can't wait to get to heaven and sit down with my dad and say, oh, dad, father, I am so sorry that I refused to watch. But now I know you. God, I love you. Verse 42, again for the second time Jesus went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Jesus was alone with the father according to the father's plan. You know, each of us has a unique and a secret sorrow that conforms to the shape of our lives in this fallen world. No one knows or can know Your sorrow Except Jesus And if you see Jesus You've seen the Father Your sorrow It's not just me that has sorrow You each have sorrow, right? Your sorrow is an invitation to commune with God In the Garden of Gethsemane And think of this: If you surrender your sorrow, no matter the reason for your sorrow, whether it was your fault or that doesn't matter. If you surrender your sorrow, then whose sorrow is it? It's his sorrow, and who suffered first? He did, and you are participating in the fellowship of his sufferings. One night during this time, at a session meeting at the church, all the elders. I uh, took turns, because I asked them to describe to me, to help me understand. They, they went around the circle, and they took turns uh, telling me what they thought my issues were. Now, I really do not know what is right with me and what is wrong with me. And it turns out that neither did they, because they all seemed to disagree. But that really doesn't matter. The point is, I felt like a whore who had just been raped for she had invited the raping. I went down into my office in the basement of the church, curled up in a ball, and I lay on the ground, in the dark, all alone. And so very not alone. I know this is weird, but when I struggle with depression, I picture myself on the floor of my old office, I picture myself lying there with the arms of my father wrapped around me like they used to wrap around me when I was six or seven years old. And I know that they are the arms of God. And I feel happy. (laughs) Isn't that strange? Maybe it's holy. Then Jesus came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, look, my betrayer is at hand. His betrayer is Judas and Judah and all the sons and daughter of Eve. His betrayer is us, the church. His bride. You know, the left tends to believe that we don't need to be saved from ourselves and from our wicked desires. And the right tends to believe that only a few are saved who basically save themselves, or a few are saved because Jesus chose to only die for a few. He only loves a few. Almost 10 years ago, the church put me on trial demanding that I publicly confess that, number one, God was not able to save all. All. And, number two, that God did not want to save all, but in fact delighted in damning some. I have been horrified at that. And I've been angry. I, I don't think I'm angry now, but, but sad. It's so sad but afraid to weep because I think I'm a little afraid that if I start weeping I'll I'll never stop. Afraid to weep and to, to wail for the bride for she does not see her groom. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh, God is salvation. Yahweh, God, is our help, our, our helper, our husband. We don't have faith in the covenant love of our bridegroom, and so we sell ourselves to buildings and programs and legislation and law and the strivings of our own flesh and the principalities and powers of this present darkness. We play the whore, just like Judas and Judah and all the sons and daughters of our mother Eve. The bride betrays her groom and traps herself alone in darkness. I need to acknowledge the sin, but no longer blame the bride, accuse the bride, or be angry at the bride. I need to weep for the bride and remember that I am the bride, dearly beloved by the bridegroom. Jesus received the kiss and called him friend. His kindness will judge Peter that very night and make him new. And his kindness will judge Judas after Judas has damned himself. For scripture says his kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness opens a fountain on Mount Zion and makes all things new. On the tree in the garden, He expresses our deepest sorrow, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet God has not forsaken us. He has not betrayed us. We have betrayed Him. And so He confesses our greatest sorrow, then delivers up His spirit. He expresses oil and wine. Spirit and blood. Jesus received Judas's kiss and called him friend. He did the beautiful thing. In the garden, depressed. He did not repress, but expressed the beautiful thing. Depressed, he didn't repress, but expressed, and to tell you the truth, I'm impressed. You impressed? As I told you last time when I was tried for some reason, I prayed, Father, forgive. And Susan saw me on a cross, and she saw Jesus come in and take me down off the cross. I thought it was a curse at the time, but now I know it was the greatest blessing. It was the beautiful, the beautiful thing. Some of you, like Saint, like uh, like Francis—I almost said Saint Francis—but Francis and Saint Kim Gold. Some of you, the rest of you here in this room, you came and you wept with me, and you carried me. You carried me downtown one day. Francis and I were looking for a place to meet because we just rented a place for a few weeks. We were downtown, and I said, I used to be ordained in that mainline church out in California. There's a big Presbyterian church over there by the Capitol. Let's see if we could go set things up with them. And so we did. I called my mom that night, and I said, Mom, check this out. Our new church is going to worship Sunday nights in the sanctuary at Central Presbyterian Church. My mom was silent for a minute, and then she said, Peter, don't you know what that place is? And I said, no, what are you talking about? She said, that room in that sanctuary is the place where you saw your father tried on the floor of the Denver Presbytery. And all at once, it just came flooding back to me. That weird green blue carpet, you know, and, and the funky cross and the pews and all the details of that room. For a year, God had me stand in the very spot my father stood when I repressed my sorrow and turned it into rage, he had me stand in that spot and preach the good news. Whew. And I'm saying this, that you, the sanctuary, are the beautiful thing. But God is still expressing the beautiful thing. We're like, we're like this, we're like this blank canvas. <laughs> You see, God does not paint by number according to, to line. He doesn't paint by numbers and, and by lines. And so I really don't know what God is painting, but I believe that he is painting us with us. I can't give you the numbers and the lines because beauty, beauty is expressed like oil from an olive that's been depressed. It's expressed when we have suffered our sorrow in the garden with him. Beauty is not constrained by law and the energy of human flesh. Beauty is the expression of of love through vessels of mercy. Paul writes this, the love of Christ constrains us because we are convinced of this, that one has died for all. I think Jesus is calling us to watch with him in the garden of the olive press and then do and be his beautiful thing. One of my favorite memories of dad happened uh, one afternoon on peak one. I was alone with dad and we were about 100 yards from the top. A storm was brewing on top of the peak, and the top of peak one is really, it's like a lightning rod. I mean, it focuses everything on that point on the top. And my my dad was an obnoxious safety freak. I mean, when he used to babysit our kids, he'd make them wear a winter coat on the trampoline so they wouldn't get stung by mosquitoes in August. He's just like, was outrageously, uh, nutty that way. He was a safety freak. But now this storm uh, was brewing, and I was convinced that we would turn around. Lightning was crashing all around us. The rocks were literally buzzing and popping with static electricity. Uh, It was incredibly frightening. And so I looked at my dad, and my dad looked back at me. His hair was literally standing up like this with the electrical, electrical charge. And he had this wild Look in his eyes, like a fire in his eyes, and he said, Peter, we can do it. Let's do it. And we did. That was the day I learned from my dad that there is a beauty worth dying for. Well, oh, God the Father and God the Son were almost to the top of Mount Moriah, now called Zion and Calvary. Lightning was crashing all around. Jesus looked into his father's eyes, and they were wild. They were filled with fire, and he said, Son, we can make it. Let's do the beautiful thing. Let's forgive them all. So they climbed the mountain, drank the cup, hung on the ancient tree, and made all things new including you, and your sorrow too. But you can't go around the cross. You can only go through the cross. You must choose to suffer the sorrow. You must choose. But don't worry. That's why he came. He came to give you his choice. His good, free, and beautiful will. And so on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant. Oh, it's a marriage covenant. This is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, drink of it, drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. If right now you are in the Garden of Gethsemane, hear me well. You are in a holy place. Watch Jesus. If you are depressed, watch Jesus and you won't repress your sorrow you will express the beautiful thing and so pray this prayer with me just you can just agree with me pray so Father Thank you for my story, all of it, in Jesus' name, amen. There's this uh, really great thing in the Chronicles of Narnia at the end, I think it's the magician's nephew. Um, It's at the end of the story and Diggory, remember Diggory has taken fruit from a tree uh, in a garden and plunged Narnia into darkness and chaos and he took the fruit in order to save his mother's life but his mother died and now he feels terrible for his mother's death and for all the darkness in Narnia. He's standing there weeping when he suddenly realizes that Aslan the lion is standing right behind him. And he turns around with tears running down his cheek and he's shocked to see that Aslan also has tears on his cheek but Aslan's tears are bigger than his tears almost as if Aslan were more sorry than Diggory and Aslan puts his face right down in front of Diggory and he says, Diggory, grief is great. As of now, only you and I know that in this world. Let us be good to each other. So by way of benediction, believe the gospel and be good to each other. Amen.